It will work. Oh, Toddy, it will not. If you listen to me and do exactly as I say, in six weeks you'll be the toast of Paris and we will both be very rich. Ladies and gentlemen, the nightclub is proud to present one of the great entertainers of our time. The one and only Victor. Victoria. Make it broad with tons of shoulders. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. The gang is all here. Yay! I was listening back to our cabaret episode and wow, that movie seems like we recorded it a million years ago because now everybody is quarantined. It's a different world for sure. As ever, we are remotely recording. So as a trio, we have been social distancing since the very beginning. We don't even have to worry about it. <laughs> I do have to ask Sam real quick before we get into the episode. What did you think of Cabaret? So I did watch it. It's not a favorite. It's a little weird. (laughs) Cabaret and this have some similarities that I can't quite pin down. They're both really memorable musicals, but they both have a really unique place in the history of musicals. I like them both. I just don't consider either one a favorite. So I wasn't super (laughs) excited about either one. I really love the attempt as far as trying to put everything into a different time period, making everything period accurate, costumes and things like that. And Joel Grey was actually really interesting. I had never seen anything of his before, so I was really surprised how much I liked his performance as well. I had never seen Liza Minnelli in anything either. Other than the two-second cameo she has at the end of In the Good Old Summertime. And now you know why Sam was not on this episode. She just did not like the movie. <laughs> I'm joking. Oh, well, I'm joking. You know. totally joking. But I do want to throw out, if you listen to the end of our cabaret episode we were supposed to do a recast because i had assumed that we would be prepping for tcm by the time we recorded the world imploded and tcm was inevitably canceled so we decided to mourn and hopefully get over the fact that we would not be doing tcm this year that we decided the next three episodes we would devote to picking a movie that we were Excited to see in some form at the TCM Film Festival that is now no longer happening. I picked Victor Victoria, which is from 1982, which I was so excited because Julie Andrews is going to intro it. It's a movie I've seen a billion times. I'm trying not to get upset just talking about how it's not happening anymore. But the movie remains, so I figured it was worth a shot. I did not realize until Sam just said it how very similar it is to Cabaret in the fact that they came out within about a decade apart. They deal with similar things, albeit very different morality and less history than Cabaret is. Either way, it's a movie I picked, so whatever. 
from 1982, directed by Blake Edwards, starring Julie Andrews, James Garner, Robert Preston, Leslie Ann Warren, and Alex Karras. It tells the story of a small-time singer, Victoria Grant, played by Julie Andrews, who cannot get a job in 1934 Paris. Through a series of machinations, she ends up teaming up with a man named Toddy, played by Robert Preston, who passes her off as a female impersonator. So she is presumably supposed to be a man impersonating a woman. She's actually a woman. So we get a lot of gender bending in this movie. As she becomes a big success, playing as Count Victor Grzynski, she ends up meeting a American impresario named King Marchand, played by James Garner, and homoeroticism ensues. Oh my gosh, I love this movie so freaking much. I'll save Sam for last because I know she hasn't seen this movie until we watched it. Wait, hold on. I <laughs> no, oh my god, you had seen this prior to? I'm so happy. Yes, this is the second <laughs> time I've seen it. I'll wait till the end to include all my thoughts and everything, but I just wanted to throw that in there. I also want to comfort Kristen a little bit because this cancellation makes me think of Jacqueline Bissett, who in 2018 when I saw Bullet at the fest with my grandmother, we were standing in line to see it when we found out that she had canceled. But then the next year she came back and she introduced a different movie, but she did return. So I'm thinking either Julie Andrews or all of the guests who could not make it to this fest will be back. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful personally that Julie Andrews will come back and introduce Mary Poppins instead. (laughs) Because she hasn't done that one at the fest. I'll throw it over to Drea first. Drea, what was your prior experience with Victor Victoria and what do you think about it? Oddly, I'd only seen this once before and I very much remember it because I saw it when I was a teenager and I was babysitting and it came up on whatever channel it was playing on back then. This was pre-TCM, not to age myself. It'd be hard-pressed to be especially a girl anywhere around any of our ages and not grow up loving Julie Andrews. So, of course, the minute her name came on, I was like, oh, yes, I'm going to watch this. The kids are asleep. It's that babysitting period where you're just waiting for the parents. It was such a different movie for me than how I knew her and how I had loved her, and I loved seeing it. It made me feel like I was friends with Julie Andrews because she was sharing more of herself through her choices. This is a much more sophisticated lens that I'm looking at now. Then I was just like, oh, how cool. Look at what Julie Andrews wants to do. It was a strange movie for a teenager or this teenager to watch. But I just remember being in someone else's living room by myself watching this movie and being like, was this what it was like? Also, because I was young enough and not really thinking it through. I did that thing that happens a lot when you're watching a movie that was filmed before the time you're currently living in. That is a period piece in and of itself. In your head, you're just like, oh, this was probably a modern film when it was made. I remember watching Sound of Music and assuming that they made that relatively near the time of the Nazi invasion. Not the brightest child, apparently. But with Victor Victoria, I just remember 
having this, oh, I wonder if this ever actually happened to Julie Andrews. I'm re- revealing too much about how I was not <laughs> spending a lot of time thinking about things in depth as a teenager. I did love it and think it was strange. And then I did not see it again until we rewatched it for this. I could feel myself back in that time and place, which is something I love so much about movies in general. Victor Victoria is a comfort movie in the most comforting of times. I can remember being in excruciating pain from a knee ailment and having this movie on and just being completely happy. It is just so comforting, which is odd because I don't necessarily know if Blake Edwards is a director known for making comfort films. I have not seen Blake Edwards' most famous movie, which would be 10, but I know that him and Julie Andrews were obviously married for a long time until he passed. They made several films together. This is probably my favorite. It's a very close tie between this and SOB, which I I had a reason to make everybody, including Samantha Ellis, watch SOB. I would come up with one because that movie is genius and oh, the things that it does. But Victor Victoria is a great entry. As we were talking about with Cabaret last episode, Drea and I, it's a good example of a way to get people into classic films while still being a somewhat modern movie, modern by 1982 standards, because it does have that old Hollywood glitz to it. It's set in the cabarets of 1934 Paris. Everybody's dressed to the nines. But at the same time, it has a very 1980s, aka modern day sensibility in that there's language and there's a bit more risque nudity and things you necessarily couldn't do if this movie was actually filmed in 1934, particularly with the homoeroticism, which happens between Julie Andrews and James Garner's character, which if this was probably pre-code, they might have done it with two men, but I don't know. But it's really funny. It's very witty. Everybody's in top form. I will probably talk a lot about James Garner when we get to him because he is one of the best looking men to have ever existed in old Hollywood. He was great. And Rita Moreno said he was a doll, which made me super happy that he was not a scumbag because we have to appreciate the few men in Hollywood who were not horrible. Sam, what was your prior experience with this? I first have to say I am so with you on James Garner. I adore him. So I'm very excited to talk about him in this movie. We should do a whole James Garner appreciation episode at some point. Now that I know that, wait, hold on, there's a man that we agree on. We got to get that done at some point. I feel like I should chime in to say that I don't like him, except for I love him because he's James Garner. I was going to say, you had me going there for a second, Drea. (laughs) Oh, man. Wait, there's a guy we all agree on. That's awesome. It's hard not to agree on James Garner. James Garner, bringing the world together. (laughs) This movie, I had only seen it once, so it's a fair assumption, Kristen, to assume that I had not seen it before. I totally understand why people would think that I hadn't seen it. It's a transitional film for classic movie lovers. And this is where you could draw a comparison to Cabaret. It's set in vintage times but it's through a little more of a modern lens and it casts stars who you would know if you're an old Hollywood fan. And it discusses sexuality a great deal. So in that sense, they're fairly similar. 
This one, though, is a lot more successful. This one, definitely, I prefer to Cabaret. Julie Andrews is just unforgettable. Nobody could have played this part better than her, and especially around this time. James Garner, I adore him. I am really hoping that Robert Preston gets some love on this episode, because going from a movie like This Gun for Hire where he plays Veronica Lake's very masculine boyfriend who's a cop to this. It's a shocking transition, but he pulls off both incredibly. I think that's a good place to start with Robert Preston, who I think embodies the old Hollywood elements of this more than any of them, because Julie Andrews and James Garner both really became Hollywood stars towards the later end of the 1950s into the 1960s. But Robert Preston if you've followed this podcast, was making movies starting as early as the 1930s. And I've seen way too many Robert Preston movies back when I was doing a series for TCM Backlot. I watched as many Robert Preston movies as I could. It is shocking if you are like me and you started with Victor Victoria and something like SOB where he's playing these very overly flamboyant characters. I always thought up until I started researching Robert Preston that he was really gay. He plays Toddy so well, that's gotta be reality. And it was so not. That's just how great of an actor he was. And you go back and you look at some of his older output. He was the music man for crying out loud. He's able to literally play everything from this dashing debonair leading man in film noir to these other cads in something like Union Pacific or this very sad, pathetic character as Toddy, where he just wants someone to care for him. And the dudes in 1930s Paris are just rude, and they don't care. And when he meets Victoria, she's his best friend, but they have this real understanding for each other. And I love the scenes where they're just hanging out, singing home on the range to each other because it's such a natural camaraderie that says so much about how much these two characters need each other. You can really only get that from somebody who was able to be a true chameleon. I love that you mention the friendship chemistry that he and Julie Andrews have because they really, really do. It stands out so well. You can honestly almost tell that they're already friends and that they had a really fun time making the film, especially when you see the final scene, everybody's reactions to him doing the salsa number in one take, which is just so crazy. He was such a pro. I was watching this with a friend who had seen it before as well. And I'm always like, do you know who that is? And they're like, no, who's that? And I'm like, that's the music man. He's like, what? That's the music man? And I'm like, yeah, it's literally a two decade difference, which is really shocking. It's a jarring transition there. There's something to be said because you have Robert Preston, who can play a very masculine male. Of course, there's the huge change in this. It's worth noting that both of the leading men... I'm not saying that James Garner is feminine by any stretch of the imagination, but I always thought of him as a masculine guy with a very soft heart compared to some of his other male counterparts in cinema. Seeing his Westerns like Support Your Local Sheriff, you watch those movies and you're like, 
yeah, he could shoot you. He could punch you in the face, but he'd also be a really great cuddler. Yeah, you try to have these manly guys in this movie, but they all skew a little bit more towards soft masculine guys. One of my favorite things about this, and we can wait till we talk more about James specifically, but I really appreciate that it was less about them being soft and having an absence of what we see as traditional masculine characters than having those characteristics while also being thoughtful. That was a much more interesting blend that this took because the idea that humans and men can contain multitudes is much more interesting than, oh, you can be a fighting man or you can be a masculine fighting guy or you can be soft and understand women and understand a sexual spectrum. And this I appreciated that both with James and Alex Karras touched on that. With Robert Preston, it's funny, I really only knew him as the music man. I did not have Kristen's previous experience of watching tons and tons of his stuff. And so he slipped through. I know there's other things that I've seen him in, probably in smaller capacities. But when I saw this, that's primarily what I recognized him in this reviewing. And I will say I blame the script for it, but for a much of the movie, he was my least favorite part for the first half only because my main complaint with this film is the setup of it to get them from the two of them meeting and becoming friends and on us understanding how destitute they are, that she's literally starving, willing to prostitute herself for a meatball, which sounds like a terrible pun, but it is not. It took what normally in a film you would get through all of that in the first 10 minutes. It took them 40. And part of it is because they were setting up their set pieces. They're in a restaurant with the two of them talking that has all of this physical comedy to it. Some of it worked better than others. It was one of those times normally I'm appreciative in classic films for the breathing space of not having to be confined to a structure like we do with so much modern film. I watched it and then I rewatched the beginning because by the time I got to the end, I had such a different feeling about him. I just wished they had already been friends because the two of their rapport is incredible. And I love the idea of a male female friendship that's platonic and loving and supportive like this, regardless of sexuality. I don't know. I just was like, they could have got there so much quicker and had less of a suspension of disbelief for us needing to believe how much these two would be open and dependent on each other immediately. And also remove the idea of, do they not have other friends in their lives at all? Because I never see them. So I don't know. That was just a story squibble. And had I been a an executive back in the day, maybe I would have given it then. But I'm 100% on board with you that their connection and how he handles things, how his charm starts to come out and be believable and his own damage that being a gay man, it's not just an archetype, it's a believable and it is still a very happen thing. I know men who feel this way, especially in Hollywood, who feel like, oh, if I'm not young and attractive myself, then 
no one will desire me. So there was so much depth and nice sadness to what he was going through and bringing. It came out really well. I just would have jumped into the story differently. What I appreciate about their dynamic, and it goes towards the gender bending element that you touched on that I've brought up is that the whole thing between them is that they both need something that the other one has. And you're totally right. I don't think they have any other friends that they can rely on. This is a very doggy dog type of world. Unlike Cabaret, where it's so infused in the society and there's this fraternity of players in the Cabaret, there's none of that here. It's this very cold, sterile small, intimate little space where you only have a handful of characters. Everybody else who's in the club is really catty and just backstabbing. Nobody really cares about anybody else. And that's what attracts Toddy and Victoria together. That scene in the restaurant, which I love, which is just a masterful bit of camera and editing and the acting between the two. She needs Toddy's charm and ability to think on his feet in that scene. Later on, when the ex-lover of Toddy shows up at his house and she's hiding in the closet, she has to punch that guy. He needs that physicality of somebody who's going to defend him. Ironically, they both need these quote-unquote masculine and feminine traits that the other one possesses in different ways. That's a bit of creative development that allows you to understand why these two characters need each other so much. But to go back to what Drea was saying about the element of masculinity, what I appreciate about this movie is there is that question of, is masculinity a facade? Obviously, of James Garner's character, King Marchand, who is the apotheosis of heterosexuality as far as he knows, and he starts to question whether he might be into Victor, who he thinks is Victor. And you have Alex Karras' character as the valet, who realizes that he really is gay. You have Toddy, who is gay. You have Victoria playing a man who's playing a woman. Really the only identifiably femme character in the whole movie is Leslie Ann Warren's character, Norma, who is King's girlfriend, who he can't stand, who is a genius in this movie. I love Leslie Ann Warren so much. She is perfection in this. It made me so happy, everything she did. We are going to talk about Leslie and Warren in a second, because I think what she does in this movie is so old Hollywood in the best way. But I love that element. The movie really builds to this question of, if King loves Victor, what does that say about him? Even though the audience knows that she's really a woman, so it would still be hetero. But he does not know that. Or does he? Because there's a part in the movie where you start to think that he is in on the gag a lot earlier and therefore it is okay for these two to engage in flirtation. I really love how this plays with the artifice of gender more than anything. Just on that tip, that was the one thing that stood out to me. They made such a point of hammering from the very first second that he never thinks she's a man. His first interaction with her backstage could do a whole thing of how absolutely ridiculous it is that she does this whole performance and she's clearly a woman and that she comes out and takes her wig off and is just a woman with short hair and everyone is like, gasp, which is again, the suspension of disbelief. Even in that moment, he's suspicious. And then his first interaction with her backstage, he has a whole conversation of how he's like, 
yeah, I don't believe that you're a man. And she's like, oh, that's because you're the world and your viewpoint, your bias. And he's like, no, I think you're a woman. I knew why they were doing that. I was so grateful for a lot of the other thoughtfulness they were putting into having him be accepting and being in public with her when she was as a man. But from the very second we met them, he knew she was a woman. I'm of the school that they play with it a bit longer and it isn't until he is for reasons hiding in her closet and she is taking a bath and she gets undressed. The assumption that I always work with is that from that point on, he knows that she is a woman. It's specious. Your argument is totally valid. Sam, what were you going to say? For my money, I fall a little bit in both. Here's my theory. We know that Blake Edwards said, I was going to do this as a film where James Garner's character does not know ever that she is really a woman until he's ready to commit. I wish that that was the case. I wish that's what they ended up doing. But after the fact, Blake Edwards said he chickened out and included that scene where James Garner sees Julie Andrews taking a bath. And that's where he knows that she's a woman. So he included that scene for that reason. The audience would know that he knows before he jumps into a relationship with this woman, man, woman. James Garner's character, he has the suspicion that she's a woman. And then that scene confirms it. Like, oh, okay, yeah, she definitely is. And I hate that they included that scene because it would be a lot more meaningful if he was ready to be with her no matter what gender she was. That would have stuck around more with modern audiences. And on top of it, I hate it when the guy's right. You know what I mean? That whole (laughs) amazing scene where Julie Andrews tells him off... No, I think you're being chauvinistic. I don't have to be a woman just because you think I'm attractive. The scene right after she performs for the first time. It basically throws that in the garbage because she actually is a woman, which means that he's right. I didn't know the whole Blake Edwards thought process, so I'm glad you brought that up. We'll never know because there's no proof either way. But I'm curious about how much play the AIDS crisis at the time was having. AIDS in the early 1980s was still very small. In 1981, the gay communities in New York and the big cities were definitely noticing that it was a problem and they couldn't get anybody to take them seriously in positions of power. This movie came out in March of 82 and it wasn't until September of 82 that the CDC actually started using the term AIDS in their dialogue, and it finally did become this public health crisis that it is. It could have had no bearing on Blake Edwards' thought process. But I'm wondering, because homosexuality in the 80s especially, it was one of those, it was accepted, but we didn't really talk about it. Like, that's cool, but don't make that a thing. And I'm wondering how much that current attitude, middle America is not going to watch a movie where Jim Rockford's making out with a man. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. It is frustrating that Blake Edwards had to captivate to what was going on in media and the public at the time. And it's only through the greatness of all the actors that I still think it works. But I have to go with Sam. You hate when the guy is right. Absolutely. That's such a good thing to bring up. 
I would rather do without that scene, but because he added it in after the fact, I think it's really easy to visualize this film without it. It's not a necessary scene. So if you just close your eyes during that scene, pretend that scene's not there, that's actually the reason why James Garner's character, when they finally kiss, he says, I don't care if you're a man, because that's originally how he was going to feel about it, because he originally didn't know. So that's why that line is still there. And it is a nice, important energy that, although (laughs) we could do a whole other thing of how appropriate it is for a man to literally follow a person into their bathroom to watch them disrobe so they can get the gender check. Not great. However, that whole sequence of him following her is another one of the physical comedy set pieces because both he and his bodyguard are stuck in their hotel room and they're crawling and they're stuck on the balcony. And so they're doing it for more of the funny farce. And the other thing that because of the whole nature of this film, but still there's never a sense of threat from James Garner. If she had undressed and gotten into the bath and been a man, he would have just made a different sequence of wry faces hiding in the cupboard and then snuck out. But I don't think it would have been played for something ugly, which I'm always grateful for. I don't care when the movie's made. I don't think he would have been a dick about it, for lack of a better word. Is the sex scene between him and Wesley Ann Warren before that reveal or after? Before. Okay, if you don't have that reveal... This is a great movie that has a scene between him and Leslie Ann Warren where he cannot rise to attention. She's like, oh yeah, it's not anything weird. It happens to every guy. Women have to fake it, not me. It leads to this hilarious exchange of sex comedy banter that you would not have in a movie made in 1934. That scene with the reveal does undermine that humor because if masculinity is the facade biologically it's still troubling to him that that's his connection to masculinity and how does that affect things it also ties in so nicely to the idea of his thoughtfulness because one of the reasons that comes across why he is unable to have sex with this woman is a we've already seen that he does not really like her and definitely doesn't care about her and b he's already been interested in this other person that he thinks is a woman, but he doesn't know for sure. I like the idea, too, that in our masculine leading man, we're seeing someone who's not able to just have sex with a person just to do it. He has to be emotionally invested in a way for his body to even work. And it's one of those nice complications of his character that makes him such a welcome avenue of all these different both masculine and thoughtfulness that I loved about that character. James Garner has, and he always had his his acting. And when I talked to Rita Moreno and I brought up James Garner, she was very surprised that I brought him up. because I don't think she gets asked about him a lot. She had mentioned that he had a lot of girlfriends, just women that he was friends with. And she's like, that was very different. That's what I appreciate about James Garner as a performer. If you look at all of his movies, his characters were always incredibly sexual characters great examples of early 1960s sex comedy 1950s you have to go watch him and doris day and the thrill of it all which is a movie where they are 
banging a lot. It's just brilliant. That was the thing was that he was an incredibly virile actor, but he had, I don't want to say a feminist bent because that's not what it was, but he respected women in his movies. All of his movies presented his female co-stars as equal, mostly because they were bigger stars or at least on the same level as him. But there's always this respect, this understanding of how women work. A great example is go watch Murphy's Romance with Sally Field. It's a brilliant movie. That's what makes his character here so appealing is, like I said, he's not threatening. And even when he's being set on by Norma, Wesley Ann Warren's character, who comes at him with all manner of sharp objects, he doesn't respond violently. It's more comical. The concept of why did I bring this big pain in my ass on a trip? That's what makes Leslie Ann Warren's character by comparison such a great foil is that she's really steeped in the Carol Lombard screwball comedy elements of the 1930s. She's got that squeaky Lena Lamont-esque voice, but at the same time, she's incredibly garish and what we probably would call white trash. That scene as the train is pulling away where she flashes her undergarments and that poor guy just falls into the middle of the train tracks. She just has no guile, whereas Julie Andrews' character is all prim and proper. It's with masculinity is all about artifice and facade, then femininity is very similar. What makes a lady? Is it Norma, who is dressed up in dresses, but she is just incredibly forward and rude and garish? Or is it Victoria, who is pretending to be a man, but is very prim and proper, but is biologically a woman? It shows the two extremes, and her character is super necessary to discuss that. A lot of people call Jean Harlow trashy, which I hate, but she is what Jean Harlow would have been if she really was trashy. A lot of the voice, a lot of the mannerisms, she really embodies what people think of Jean Harlow shot for shot. I was even pulling my hair out because her character in one scene has a box of bonbons. She takes one, she bites into it, and then she spits it out exactly like Jean Harlow does in Dinner at Eight. That's what they were trying to use almost as a foil or even a control group of This is how women might have actually been in the 1930s, even though that's not accurate. That is such a great point, because I had been concentrating so much on how the range of masculinity was presented in this. And you guys are so right. They're doing a very similar thing in giving us a butch and femme spectrum as well, because there's also something I like in this that... Julie Andrews, when she's in character as the Count and she's dressed in a man and she's in the suits, she's comfortable like that. And you also get a sense that even though at the end she changes back and she's got the woman's dress on again, she voices it at one point that moving through the world as a man and how that opens your eyes to the difference of how people are treated, there's something really nice about thinking that she's going to hold on to Not just some of the posturings of it, but maybe even was comfortable in her own skin in a way that she hadn't expected to be. I would love if she kept her beautifully tailored men's suits and still wore them around. There's so many modern 
conversations that got started in this film, for the most part, they're handled really well. There's a couple bumpy things where you're like, oh, maybe that's a little bit of a red flag. But overall, the idea is particularly through James Garner's character's acceptance. But one of the contexts of worrying about things like toxic masculinity or is the idea that it can be really limiting to people. For looking at Leslie Ann Warren's character, this woman is a powerhouse. She is someone who has so much ambition and so much drive, and she has funneled it all through this very rigid femininity. It's just such a trip to think about, oh, well, you can reverse all of this and say, this woman could also benefit from a world with less of these restrictions because she's all this power, all of this ambition, all of this focus. And yet her character is constantly dependent on men to actually kick things into action. There's so much to think about, which is funny because it's just such a fun, enjoyable view. I just wanted Leslie Ann Warren and Robert Preston to go off into the sunset together because they do not have enough scenes their scenes together are Uh, utter joy yes there's a whole scene just at the very beginning where he is trying to convince her that yes i am a homosexual madam i am not interested in you and she delights in it i would so happily have watched a second film that is of those two having partnered up in some way and unlocking her full potential maybe getting him someone to fall in love with for real Oh, we can dream. As she tells him at one point, you just haven't met the right woman. I forget how he responds, but he says, neither of you. They are equal in the enthusiasm and the -the over-the-top elements to them. I love that idea. That is so smart because their characters are so dynamic and scene-stealing that together that would have been really interesting if they had shared more scenes. I just realized listening and thinking about her character, she reminds me a lot of Madeline Kahn's role in Young Frankenstein. Is it just me? A hundred percent. I could say she has very Madeline Kahn energy. Madeline Kahn has very her energy. In Young Frankenstein, yeah, it's this very crackling. It is just this full-bodied vivacity. I love a big character when done well. Definitely a big character, and those are just two roles. They both scream, I am a woman. And they're very witty, very funny. It's hilarious considering that Madeline Kahn, Leslie, and Warren did a film together right around the time of this both in Clue. (gasps) You're so right. I just rewatched Clue two nights ago, and I didn't even think of that. And Leslie Ann Warren was, I believe, a last-minute addition to Clue. She replaced Carrie Fisher, which I can't even fathom Carrie Fisher being in that movie. And you're totally right. Madeline Kahn and Leslie Ann Warren have very similar energy in this movie, although Madeline Kahn cultivated that in several films. I feel like there's a lot of Norma in the Madeline Kahn performances, Trixie and Paper Moon. They do have similarities to them, although if you're like me and you watch this movie later in life, you only knew Leslie Ann Warren as Cinderella in the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella from 1965. So it's a very different performance. But that's what works about the roles of gender in this movie 
it's constantly shifting and it's constantly changing. And Blake Edwards wrote a lot of grandiose women in his films, but Julie Andrews always played that very stoic, fun character. I mean, she has a lot of great dialogue that she wraps her mouth around, like the whole, I'll sleep with you for a meatball, the way Julie Andrews performs that line is so hilarious because of the way her desperation comes out in the line reading, the way she looks at the actor playing opposite her, the way she touches his shirt to get the sauce and taste what it is. I mean, she just conveys the pathetic elements of that woman. I don't think she gets enough credit for being the comedian that she is. And I wonder how much of this movie the early 1980s before what we now know, according to Susan Faludi, is the backlash era where women were being told feminism had been solved, go back home and start making babies, that you would see in the later 80s into the early 90s. This movie ends with everybody relatively happy, but there is that element of, even though King respects Victoria, you're never really sure if that's going to involve her getting a job. You don't really know where those characters end because the movie ends with Toddy taking over the show. Where's Victoria? Is she going to be allowed to pursue her career? Is she going to be the happy housewife? You don't really know what their partnership entails once they get together at the end. And that always bothers me, especially if you know how 80s movies would eventually put women back into domestic roles and having to choose. You can't have it all. And that's what I'm always the back by there's something about the ending that's really difficult to swallow because on one hand robert preston it's the most fun he has the whole time as you mentioned before that's set up through these contrivances that he goes on to perform as victor victoria for the final performance and it slowly falls apart it's madness you could feel the energy of it and it's very funny shot all in one shot as samantha said It's just got a nice thing, except for what it means is our female lead, our heroine, whom we've seen grow and prosper and come into her own and have the strength, it ends with her putting back on a dress, sitting in the audience when we know all she ever wanted to do was be able to perform and be seated at the side of her male partner. It is really unfortunate. I would have loved if he had somehow introduced earlier of I'm rich, I'll set up a whole theater just for you. I'll do a cabaret. If there had been some illusion that she would still get to pursue her dreams and that she just hadn't switched her dreams to being essentially a rich man's partner. I didn't even think about that, that in depth until you said that, Drea. Now I'm really sad. She gives up everything at the end, well, basically. Kristen also introduced the bummer idea, so it's on both of us. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think about Julie Andrews? We waited almost 50 minutes to even bring up the star of the film. I brought up her comedy a little bit, but what did you both think of her overall performance? Oh gosh, she's amazing. She's effervescent in this film. Like I said, nobody else could have done this because she is actually very convincing in both genders and it works. And she's vocally talented. She pulls off all the choreography. It's a different role for her, but it feels so right. That's a great way to say it. 
she's effortless. I loved her in this. She's just such a good performer. Her voice is always lovely, even though I'll also add the music in this is terrible. These songs are terrible. There's none of them that really stood out. It's very funny that the weakest part of this thing is the music. I disagree. The Jazz Hot is good, snappy song. Jazz Hot's the I best. I love that one, too. Yeah, that's the best one in it. It's the first one we get. And normally you're like, ooh, that's just cracking open the... I can't wait to see what... Oh, everything beyond this. The man from Sevilla. I'm like, oh, I can't hear the song again. The Shady Lady from Seville. Shady Lady from Seville. That's it. Her range is so wonderful. Beyond just the musical performances, her ability to handle comedy, both physical and just those close-ups where it's just an eyebrow or a reaction shot, which is so key to comedy. She can deliver a line beautifully. She can be wry and droll. She can be sparkly. She also plays so well with the physicality. You briefly see them coaching her to dance like a man and to hold herself. And it is really small shifts because it is this complicated. She's a small, delicate featured woman and they didn't put prosthetics on her. And when she's the count, she still has mostly female makeup on. It's how she's carrying herself. She's doing a lot of physical work, even beyond the comedy that is so nice. And that she's also can be just so melty In the space of 10 minutes, she can be a performer you'd like to see on stage and also the best best friend, the best romantic interest. I do agree with what Samantha said. This is a bit of a different role for her. With Blake Edwards and some of her early films, Julie Andrews, I think it's a bum rap nowadays. Playing Maria, playing Mary Poppins as being this prim and proper, safe, clean, wholesome female character. If you see some of her work with Blake Edwards, if you watch this, especially if you watch SOB, her character is essentially her trying to figure out how to not be Mary Poppins. Or even her previous film with James Garner, The Americanization of Emily, which is such a beautiful film. There was more risk-taking, but she was always Julie Andrews. Watching this movie, you can see that fun and that whimsy but she's still Julie Andrews. That's what people really find comforting about her. Even though she's playing this character that is all over the board and is making you question gender, she's still Maria and she's still Mary Poppins. And I'm sure that has to be very difficult as a performer to figure out how can you break that. But it provides such warmth and comfort, especially in times like these where you need that. This movie was nominated for several Academy Awards in 1983. It only won one for the songs <laughs> that Drea was not a fan no. of. Uh, yes. Best music, a- original song score and adaptation or best adaptation score. I do not believe we have best adaptation score anymore. Julie Andrews was nominated for Leading Lady. Robert Preston, his only acting Oscar nomination was for this movie. What a crime. If anything, he deserves it for this. I will tell you who won in a second if you are curious. Leslie Ann Warren was also nominated for Supporting Actress. Blake Edwards was nominated for Screenwriting, Best Art Direction, and Best Costume Design. No picture. But if you are curious to know who won over Robert Preston, that year in 1983, James Mason was also nominated for The Verdict, 
John Lithgow was nominated for The World According to Gart. Charles Durning was nominated for The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And the winner was Louis Gossett Jr. for An Officer and a Gentleman. Oh, okay. That makes sense. (laughs) I can't be mad. Dang it. If we want to know who won for Best Actress, oh, well, of course she did. Does anybody want to hazard a guess who won over Julie Andrews for Victor Victoria? I'm terrible at these. Who was it? It was Meryl Streep. <laughs> uh, of course it was. I didn't even have to ask the year and I could have had a good guess with that one. Oh my gosh. For some reason, the only thing I was thinking that also came out in 1982 was Tootsie. But I'm like, no, that wouldn't win Best Actress. <laughs> <laughs> Justin Hoffman for Best Actress. I was waiting for somebody to just say Meryl for anything. And you would have been right. Lesson learned. Does anybody want to hazard what the winner of Best Picture? Tootsie was nominated for Best Picture. And this was it? This was, yes. Yeah, <laughs> so the nominees for Best Picture in 1983 were Tootsie, The Verdict, Missing, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and the winner was Gandhi. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> I was waiting for Sam to be like, Okay. <laughs> I'm not surprised, but I'm also not pleased. Sorry, 1983. Your Oscars were not our favorite. I'm happy, though, that Victor Victoria did win Best Music over Annie, which was also nominated, because I don't dictate a lot of things that we'll never talk about on this podcast, but you do not want me to talk about 1982's version of Annie. because I just- Girl! Music-wise, you're crazy. The music in Annie is way better. The music is great. The movie is trash. I've not seen it in a long time, but you mean the one with Carol Burnett as Miss Hannigan? That is the one with Carol Burnett as Miss Hannigan. Oh, and Bernadette Peters and Tim Curry? You're crazy. (laughs) I'm not even the person to ask because I'm like... The 80s? We're talking about the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) I like how Sam's whole takeaway from, ew, 80s, gross. Literally! Samantha was not even alive then, because she only lived from 1940 to 1965. (laughs) Literally. She just is a head in a canister somewhere now that gets to (laughs) have a microphone put in front of us. I can't even take this seriously because E.T. was nominated for Best Picture. So. <laughs> Samantha! Samantha! That's the 80s were you guys. Take that, Steve Spielberg. Ticklish business has spoken. <laughs> well, okay, I have spoken. I don't know about yeah, y'all. Don't put me in with that. E.T. is amazing. Is this the point where I admit I've only seen E.T. once and I thought it was just okay? Okay, let's just wrap this up. I can't be fueled <laughs> all day with my eye-rolling of you two. I saw E.T. when I was 18 years old. I feel like I missed the boat because I was just too old. I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry. <laughs> We're down a road that we are coming after. So I'm just going to close us out. But you can send us your thoughts about Victor Victoria, Blake Edwards, Steven Spielberg, the 1980s. Send it to us at ticklishbasegmail.com. And we'll read them on the next episode. You can follow me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. I also do a classic film blog called 
journeys in classicfilm.com or you can visit indiewire.com where all my tv coverage is sam where can fans find and get in touch with you and read all your work you can find my website at musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com. You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts on classicmoviehub.com. Next month, we've got Doris Day. You can follow me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. Drea Clark, what about you? I am on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and my other podcast is on Maximum Fun and called Who Shot Ya? about contemporary films. And also, I really hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. Yes, yes, definitely. You can also follow the podcast. We are wherever you get your podcast, whether that's ticklishbusiness.podbean.com, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, or Apple Podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, every rating and review helps us. So decide to leave one, maybe. That'd be great. You can always contact us directly uh, at our email address or on our official Twitter, which is at ticklish underscore biz. If you want to learn more about upcoming episodes, hear exclusive content, or get a bunch of really cool pins, we just put together a massive, by massive, I mean it was a couple days, drive for our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And we made a set of three different buttons that we were going to give out at the TCM Classic Film Festival designed by our own Samantha Ellis, they came out beautiful. I have all of them at my house right now, and we are giving them to every single person who becomes a patron. So if you want three buttons, as well as the regular buttons that you get, head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. You can also get a bunch of other things. I have a ton of bonus shows that we do. William Bibiani and I do based on a true podcast. We're getting ready to record another episode soon since we all have time now. And I also do double features with Adam Kautzer. I'm starting up Hitchcast and I'm going to be recording a bunch of bonus episodes. Just whatever people want to talk about with a couple of friends who are also homebound. So we figured why not talk about some old movies. A bunch of stuff's going to go up there as well as a couple backlog interviews that I have not had time to edit. But hey, time has no meaning now. Might as well get those out. You can head over once again to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz and find out more. Next time, we are going to be doing another was going to be a TCM film. This one was actually picked by Drea Clark. And this, I think, might be our first Disney movie. What? I don't actually think we've ever done a Disney animated feature on this podcast. We've not done animation. Yeah, I don't think we've done any of the animations. We are going to be looking at 1963's The Sword in the Stone. So that will be next time. Till then!